G'day Inverse community, I'm Jared McKenna and I can't tell you how excited I am about my co-host Dr Drew Hart's new book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love and Deliverance. To quote that towering 20th century figure of God's justice, love and deliverance, Abraham Joshua Heschel, there are no final proofs for the existence of God. There are only witnesses. For Heschel, much like the Hebrew prophets and that nonviolent Messiah of justice named Jesus, faith is not merely to be believed, faith is to be embodied. Drew Hart is fast becoming a go-to voice for articulating a practical and prophetic embodied faith in our time. In these additional episodes, alongside our regular interviews, I think you'll hear why. Over the next coming weeks, we will interview friends and co-workers in what John Lewis called Good Trouble to discuss chapter by chapter Doc Drew's new book. These conversations were recorded in community with friends from around the world as part of Inverse's ongoing work to create formation experiences that deepen our witness to God's justice, love and deliverance. So grace and peace to you. Enjoy this conversation on this chapter in Drew's new book. So I would like to welcome uh, into conversation uh, Reverend Otis Moss III, who is the pastor of Trinity UCC. He is, uh, I believe, one of the most powerful preachers alive, period. Um, and certainly one of my um, certainly favorite preachers as well. Um, he's the author of uh, Blue Note Preaching in a Post-Soul World, Finding Hope in an Age of Despair. Um, and in many ways, he embodies uh, some of what we've been talking about. In some ways, you could say uh, Reverend Moss has been born into the Black prophetic tradition and embodies it in so many ways, in so many profound ways. And so um, welcome uh, to the conversation, uh, Reverend Moss. Thank you so very much, uh, Drew. Uh, you do such an incredible job, number one. Your book uh, is, is powerful. I feel that we are kindred spirits on so many levels uh, in terms of our collective history uh, and how our families developed and the path that, uh, that we take. And I want to personally thank you uh, for the work uh, that you are doing um, and the publications that you have created and the teaching that you've been doing. Um, you've been teaching in spaces where um, some people have been resistant, uh, but you have a spirit that is able to weave truth and break down uh, the calluses on the heart in a powerful way. And I just want to thank you uh, for what you've been doing, man. Uh, and I'm a great admirer of uh, of your work. Uh, so, uh, you know, kudos to you and uh, what you're doing. I appreciate so I, that. Oh, man, appreciate you. You're doing it, brother. You're definitely yeah. doing it. Yeah. Uh, and man, I, I, I was I, I was able to sneak in and hear um, just the powerful remarks of, of Rebecca and I. I mean, they were just just on it. Uh, these two sisters just you all went in. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, for blessing us on so, on so many levels. Uh, what, what I'd like to, and in reference to, to your book, Drew, yeah. and 
where we are as, as not only a nation, um, but where we find ourselves spiritually, collectively, as, as a human family. As I usually begin, and you, you, you touch on this so, on so much, is the claim or the word uh, that is called Christianity in America is not Christian. The American gospel, mm. the good news of America, uh, it begins with a C, but it has nothing to do with Christ. That's right. It's capital and capitalism, which defines mm. uh, the idolatry in reference to America. Um, my father has this quote, and I love the way he says it. Uh, if I can, if I can get it, if I can get it correct. Uh, he says that uh, when someone uh, realized that slavery was economically profitable, then someone came along and made it politically acceptable. And then theologians uh, made it uh, theologically permissible. Uh, he said that you start with capital, then you bring in the politicians and faith ends up becoming the tail light instead of the headlight. That's right. And anytime you have a conversation about uh, American Christianity, you need to recognize that it is nothing more than capitalism with ecclesiastical garments. That's right. And until we embrace that, you can never get to the truth of what America is, uh, a space of stolen land uh, and stolen people to create a uh, mythos and dreamland for a false ideology uh, for a people who think they're white. That's right. uh, and I use the term think white right. because historically, there was no whiteness. Right. America introduced a viral agent, COVID-1619, <laughs> to the world. Um, and that particular viral agent continues uh, to infect. And there's a wonderful sister by the name of Isabella Wilkerson uh, who has created this Cast. amazing book called Cast yeah. um, that just breaks this thing down on a, a higher level. And if you were to look in literature prior to, mm, you know, roughly about 1742, 1753, you don't have the terminology white, you don't have the terminology Negro, you don't have the terminology colored. Right. Um, you have the terminology of, of ethnicity, African. You have the terminology of, of indigenous communities, their particular nation. You have the terminology of where people are from right. um, in terms of their history and their heritage. Whiteness was created specifically when ethnic groups recognized commonality and that landowners who had the stamp of Christianity but did not have the practice were attempting to create a false ideology 
of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So you have something called the Bacon Rebellion. You had, you had black and white folk, and um, especially in New Orleans, you always had indigenous people and black people getting together to say, hey, how can we turn this thing around? Right. Whiteness was introduced to say, I'll give you, I won't give you more money. I won't make you a landowner. I won't do any of those things, but I would at least, at the very least, um, allow you to have a privilege that says you're better than people who have a color and a caste, um, and thus the birth of whiteness. Because what is interesting is that if you leave the U.S., if you're white, no one says, welcome white, white person to Europe. <laughs> they say, oh, you're American? Are you Scottish? Are you French? Are you German? They, ra they raise the question about your ethnicity because they want to know your history and your heritage. And the challenge in America is that we are so anti-ethnic, but we end up being pro-white, which is problematic. Right. Um, and, and we've got to regain, regain that. And it is the, within the black church tradition uh, that I, I believe that those who've been deeply marginalized um, are able to reclaim uh, the uh, part of the truth that is inherent within, within the gospel. Right. Uh, so the people who were denied the most end up demonstrating um, what it means to follow Christ in the embodiment of their practice. Uh, Jesus knows all about our troubles. When we, we saw Jesus today, that's a brother. <laughs> you know, uh, Harriet Tubman becomes Moses embodied, right. not, not just embodied. the name. Right. Black folks said, no, the spirit of Moses rests in, in yep. Harriet Tubman. In other words, God, who is Elohim, uh, neither male nor female, but male and female, can embody anybody and embodied a woman by the name of Harriet Tubman. So Moses is male and female within the tradition of the 1700s and 1800s of Black folk, right. which blows the mind of people today because we believe that the spirit cannot be captured. Um, you can only be possessed by and, and I believe that this type of, 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 of spirituality can free, uh, can free, free us if we are willing to engage this type of, of liberation action and, 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 and uh, framework. And the, the depth of, I, I think the best of the black church tradition does that. Now, now the black church tradition has also been infected uh, by right. some white evangelicalism too. Right, right. Uh, been infected by capitalism. But right. when you start talking about the best of the tradition, right. you start saying the names Harriet, mm -hmm. Frederick, Sojourner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you even have to raise Du Bois. Yeah. You even have to talk about Marcus Garvey. You have yep. to talk about the Pullman Port. You begin to, you talk Ida B. Wells, who made it real clear. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. She was a womanist talking about black. She was the first Black Lives Matter hashtag. That was her job. Right. Yep. She went around saying there are too many black bodies swinging from strange southern trees, the strange fruit. Mm. Ida B. Wells, yep. bad to the bone. Absolutely. Who saw Jesus not as someone from Sweden, mm. but someone who was, was deeply rooted and embodied within a particular tradition. Uh, and, and, and so there's this long history and then it all of a sudden it moves into, you know, when we talk about King, but before you even talk about King, you talk about Vernon Johns, 
You talk about yeah. the person who was the former uh, before him. All of this is a particular tradition. This is not Reinhold Niebuhr and it's not Martin Luther. Right. <laughs> this is a tradition that has been honed from not only West Africa, but within um, uh, the, the, the hush harbors and brush harbors of, of America that has a very radical and powerful theology. And what's interesting, it is not exclusive. Right. In that these traditions welcome everybody, even if they don't have the language to do the welcoming. Right. I was just, uh, I was just saying, uh, I always do this uh, with my students um, because there's this false perception that, you know, white students, this is on a Christian campus, right? So they'll come in and be like, oh, you know, the problem is the white church and the black church and everyone's separate. And I'm like, oh, no, no, we're not going to be in that ahistorical here. Um, there's a difference between segregation and withdrawal. I like black folk withdrew, right, from white supremacy and racial segregationist Christianity. And the fact of the matter is that those spaces were always uh, welcoming and opportunities in which white people were welcomed as equals, social equals, not just spiritual equals, social equals. The problem is that white people never took them up on that offer, right? Um, but, but, but white Christianity in the white church, it was built and designed and functioned around segregationist logics, white supremacy, racial hierarchy, all of that and exclusion. And so um, we dare not begin to conflate those two entities as the same thing. I think that's lazy and ahistorical when we do so, yeah. You know, you, you bring up a great point because if you look at, uh, one, one of my favorite people to examine is a gentleman by the name of William Seymour. Um, yeah. Seymour, who is the founder of, of, of the Pentecostal movement. Right. Not church, movement. Movement. When he formed the, the Azusa Street Revival, which many people don't know, um, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, when you read the records uh, from that time period, you had at that church, Latino and Asian together in Los Angeles. And here's the interesting thing. Black folk didn't know Spanish. They didn't know any particular English, uh, Asian languages. Um, but they said they all could understand each other. Right. But the other piece that was amazing was that you had women in positions of leadership that today many Pentecostals struggle with. Right. So the deacons were women, not deaconess. They ain't make up no term. You know, I know we make up terms, um, but they were in positions of power. And so when white men showed up, uh, to visit this particular meeting who were charismatics from the North. They were shocked when they saw this literal gumbo of American culture. And that's when they decided that they were going to try and destroy the movement. And that's when you get the church of God, not the church of God in Christ. Right. Um, <laughs> that they withdrew. Drew. Right. Yeah, that's good. All right. So I got a question. Um, so thinking about this Black perfect tradition, I mean, there's no, I mean, anybody that is reading this chapter and then they're thinking about um, your ministry, they're also thinking that you are standing in the pulpit of Jeremiah Wright. Um, and so, so as we think about the, the way in which um, our nation um, in the most ridiculous and 
unfair representations of what he was doing and saying. Um, I'm just curious about your own reactions and, I mean, having that connection to uh, Reverend Wright. Um, how, how did you react to the way that America responded to him and to, I mean, obviously it was just a 30 second clip, so they didn't even give him the opportunity to, I mean, but uh, what was your response to all of that? Uh, laughter and anger at the same time. He said, mm. here we go again. Here right. we go again. So the sermon that was lifted primarily by Fox, particularly by Sean Hannity, um, the sermon was uh, God or government. Right. And he raised the question that there are some people who view government over God. And he was using the prophetic, uh, the prophet, is saying in speaking, um, the prophet was saying that you as a king, you are not God. There was only right. one God. And yeah. if you begin to see yourself as God and then used the term uh, that it's not God bless America, but biblically, God right. will damn, damn a right. nation. That's, That's right. what he said. That's, That's right. And it was so, and what was interesting, got a note. We, I got a note. I got a note to say from Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann sent, sent me a note. He says, I want you to know that that was one of the most, it was a brilliant sermon, but also Brueggemann goes on to say um, that uh, he was absolutely exegetically on point. That's because right. if you look, in, he said, if you look in the Hebrew, it says, <laughs> God damns the nation. <laughs> and he, he listed all of the moments where God says, I will damn the nation. He said, it's just a sad thing that Sean Hannity doesn't know Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that don't know, uh, Brueggemann, he, he wrote um, The Prophetic Imagination and other mm -hmm. texts like that. Hebrew scholar, well-renowned. Um, and so of anybody that could bring authority on the significance of that, he's considered a leader in this um, mm -hmm. in terms of just the scholarship in Old Testament literature. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I remembered even just the little clip. I was like, I don't get the, the full issue of what people are freaking out about. But then when I saw the whole sermon, I was like, it was just facts. Like, I mean, he, uh, I mean, he's just like telling American history, which is, it's disturbing. I know for some folks that in and of itself, you can't actually tell the actual history of our nation um, because that disrupts the American exceptionalist narrative. Right. And so I think that in and of itself um, was problematic that he would, this black man would dare to speak truthfully about who we actually have been and what has gone on in this land. Yeah. I believe it was um, James Baldwin says that America lives a lie and is disturbed by the truth mm. and is angered if you disturb them from their sleep. Um, and it's like, wow. And then he goes on to say, he says, um, how do you put it? Uh, the way that America speaks about people that it's that it marginalizes doesn't say anything because he said he was talking about someone who's calling him a you know a particular slur and he says that really says more about you than right. me <laughs> because i'm not what you say that i am but if you believe that i am that it speaks more to your spirit than it does to me so i'm not bothered by what you say 
I just know that you need to repent. I was like, geez. <laughs> like, okay, James Baldwin, kill it. Okay. I'm curious, um, are there any, when you think about the Black prophetic tradition, who, who are some of the folks that are most like inspiring to you? Who, who brings you life and energy and, and you draw from and got to go back to and yeah. Frederick Douglass. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Frederick Douglass. I uh, love Frederick Douglass. Vernon Johns mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is a person. Fannie Lou Hamer is, is, is another, uh, another person. James Baldwin who is a part of the, is a part of the black prophetic tradition. If you read him, his language is structured, written uh, out of the black prophetic tradition. He has a quarrel with the church um, because he believed that the church was never living up to its potential. Uh, And that was his, his, his real challenge. Um, Gardner C. Taylor, I absolutely Mm. adored when he was, was, was living. Um, in terms of his poetic power and the way in which he would, uh, in which he would uh, preach. Uh, There's a woman by the name of Prathia Hall. Oh, right. uh, actually, and Prathia Hall is the person who really inspired and shared um, the clothes that we know by Dr. Right. King. Dr. King's I have right. a dream, right? That's, you know, Prathia right. Hall taught that to Dr. King. And Dr. King right. was, you know, he said it, he was literally doing a remix trying to figure out how am I going to close this message? Because what I wrote is not going to work. Um, and he did like a cold train thing in that moment and said, Oh, Prathia Hall said, ah, oh, I have a dream. And that, I mean, that's how we got it. <laughs> I, mean, that's, I mean, that's literally how we got it. Yep. Um, and so I remember actually inviting Prathia Hall uh, to preach uh, at the church that I, I, I uh, pastored early in my career in ta- at Tabernacle Baptist in uh, Augusta, Georgia, and also in inviting Gardner Taylor when, when mm-hmm. he was late, one of the great uh, poets of, of, of the pulpit. Um, and, and the one, the number one guy, without a doubt, is, is my pop. You know, so my pop, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that he, I think he's just the greatest homiletician ever. I'm biased. He's my dad, but, you know, he can, <laughs> he can do it. I mean, I just, I love to hear him preach. And of course, if anybody has not heard the Mosses, uh, uh, co-preach together, um, tag team preach together. You got, that's an experience that you need to have at some point. Um, last thing I wanted to talk about, um, and this is more related to some of the ministry that's coming out of um, Trinity in more recent days. Um, one of the things that I've really appreciated, I'm, I don't think I've seen them all, but I've I've noticed that you guys have been doing some really powerful, dramatic film sermons um, and they're just powerful. I mean, I had, I shared some with my, my students. Um, I just really appreciate that. Can you tell a little bit about the story of, of how that has evolved and, and, uh, kind of what's orienting that work? Well, all my life, uh, especially when I was small, I wanted to be a filmmaker. Uh, I went to Morehouse planning to be a cinematographer. Um, I was a absolute lover of all things Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Spike Lee, um, and uh, a Japanese director by the name of Akira Kurosawa. And when I got to Morehouse, got got called in a different direction, uh, that being uh, ministry, but I've always been a cinephile. And so when the, hey, somebody just put Seven Samurai, come on. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Thank you, Julie. Um, And... 
when I made it to Morehouse and then eventually went to uh, uh, graduate and went to, went, went to Yale, I uh, still kept that in the back of my mind um, and we kind of became a cinephile. But when the pandemic uh, uh, hit us, the question was, since we were going to be virtual, how do we communicate the gospel? Now, when you're in church, there is an experience that you can have live. But when you are trying to communicate uh, via a stream, there are some artistic techniques in film, which have always been used by the church, remember. So when you go to an Orthodox church, they don't just have someone preach. They got stained glass and they have architecture and they have sounds and smells. Everything has meaning because it has a subtext. Same thing with film. So we realized that if we are going to be able to communicate effectively, we really created a new genre, it's called sermonic film. How do you take images and story and, and color uh, and shots to be able to communicate the gospel? Because I, I, I preach behind a stained glass that's specifically supposed to be out of focus. The reason it's out of focus is supposed to see a variety of shards. Those variety of shards communicate the human family of different culture, uh, colors who are very much different, but yet one light comes through it. That's, that, that's intentional. That's, that's not done just on, on a whim. Uh, the images, I, you know, I did the, uh, the, the sermon, uh, the, lin- the, the cross and lynching tree. We recreated um, the image of Ahmaud Arbery running. Uh, even though we did it like behind the church, but we made it look like it was Georgia um, and use the sounds of his footsteps to talk about this, this modern day lynching that we had experienced and then used images from, you know, 12 years a slave and um, uh, the birth of a nation to be able to communicate these, these ideas. Um, Film is a powerful way. Filmmakers understand how to communicate effectively. And part of the problem is is that churches just put a camera in front of a pulpit and then expect people to engage. Uh, You've got to have a little bit more than just stick the camera in front. I mean, it's cool. You can do that. But there are ways in which to engage people at, at a higher level so that there is such subtext of sound, of color, of the use of editing, of camera framing, um, and 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 all those things. So that's that's where really comes to. I mean, we're very intentional. There's a team of that working. You know, sermonic films take more work than a regular sermon, too. By the way, um, I'm sure <laughs> so, <laughs> they're not easy to do. Um, but that's where that's the that's the genesis of them. That's the genesis. Yeah. yeah. Well, they've been powerful. Um, they are deeply powerful, and I've really appreciated them and. Um, from my own students, um, most of them enjoyed it. Some of them were provoked in in good ways that they needed, um, and they're still working. We're, we're God's still working on them, but um, but but it's been really powerful for them as well. Um, and so I've been grateful to even to be able to share that with others. Uh, so normally during the a normal semester for this one particular course. I would actually, because I I want them to learn academic black theology, but I also want them to see lived theology. So I would normally send them into the churches, right, Um, in Harrisburg, and they would go to an Amy church and a Kojic church um, and a um, black Baptist church. And that's part of their experience in the course. 
But um, but now I'm like, all right, well, if I'm going to ha- give them an experience, um, um, and that was certainly one of the things that I wanted them to experience as they engage and think about the Black church. And so grateful for that work. Um, again, thank you just for making this time. So grateful always to be in conversation with you. I just so deeply admire your ministry, your prophetic witness. It's been so faithful and, um, and it's been an encouragement to so many. And especially in these moments in which, you know, you've got uh, this crazy fool in the White House doing all kinds of stuff. And so it's good to have an anchor of some a baseline of some uh, faithfulness to kind of see um, and orient us. And so thank you for all that you yeah. do. We, we, have, we got three diseases. We got COVID-19, COVID-16, 19, and COVID-45. Okay. So, so we got to deal with all three. <laughs> all right. All right. Bless you. Bless you, man. Thank you so much. If you want to be part of this growing global community, you can find more details on our Inverse Patreon page. We are seeking to practice a Jubilee economics to make these experiences accessible to everyone wherever you're found, be it in remote communities in the Kimberley or a township in Cape Town or downtown Berlin or on the south side of Chicago or the suburbs of Sydney. We want to make this accessible for you, so let's work to do that together. See you.